Hey, Nick, we have some exciting news to announce regarding um, our friends over at the OBG Project. The OBG Project folks have now put all of OBG First within the OBG Resident Core. So you get OBG First for your entire OBGYN residency. How incredible is that, Faye? Yeah, that sounds really great. And just to remind you guys, the resident core over at the OBG Project is completely free. All you have to do is sign up and prove that you're a resident. And then you'll get not only OBG First, but also the OBG L&D ebook, as well as excellent curricula, as you know, as well as self-test quizzes and things like that for your studying. Yeah, that's over a $198 per year value. So if you are interested in getting this free educational resource, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, get signed up for the OBG Resident Core, and by extension, OBG First, the OBG L&D ebook, all of this awesome stuff, absolutely free, four years of residency. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs over over coffee. coffee. All right. Um, well, today we're kind of going back towards a, a topic that we had started to broach a little bit during one of our previous podcasts on cholestasis of pregnancy. Um, but this time we're going to talk a little bit about what to do when there is a rash in the dermatoses of pregnancy. And to help us out with this today, we have a special guest, um, Dr. Laura Hanks, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She was previously in private practice in Olympia, Washington, and was a resident at the University of Rochester in New York. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hanks. Thanks so much, Nick. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Well, to start us off, Dr. Hanks, um, what are our learning objectives today? Tell us what we're going to learn about. Sure. So um, I'd like to review a case presentation of a particular dermatosis in pregnancy, um, as well as describe the different dermatologic conditions specific to pregnancy and how to diagnose them. And then we'll discuss treatment options for each of these conditions. Awesome. And you've put together a really great reading list um, to go alongside the podcast, which we'll definitely have links to on the website um, for those of you looking to dive in a little bit more. Um, But let's start off easy. Um, What exactly are dermatoses? Okay. So dermatoses of pregnancy refers to a group of skin diseases um, encountered predominantly during pregnancy or immediately postpartum. We'll be focusing on the skin diseases that are a direct result of gestation or products of conception. It should be noted that in general, there's a lack of understanding actually of the pathogenesis of most of these conditions and therefore a lack of specific diagnostic criteria but we're going to do our best to highlight some clinical pearls. And I understand you've got a great understanding of this. So how should we try and initially tackle these dermatoses? So I thought we could do something a little different today than the normal way that you guys run the, run the podcast, um, which is to use a real case to illustrate this. So let's say that we have a 36-year-old G1P0 who presents at 22 weeks with severe pruritus of her abdomen, and it's now spreading to her upper thighs. What's going to be your differential right off the bat? Oh, man. So you're putting us on the spot today. Um, Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um, Well, I guess, you know, there's just like plain old itching of pregnancy. Paritis of pregnancy is like one thing to think about. Yeah. Low hanging fruit, Nick. Good job. Um, (laughs) So this is reported in 1.5 to 2% of pregnancies, and it occurs most frequently over the abdomen. It's usually just paritis with no rash, and it often presents in the third trimester. What else you got? Uh, Well, I'm going to pick the other low-hanging fruit because we just did this episode, but intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, though I understand usually this doesn't show up with a rash. 
Exactly. So you guys did do a great podcast back in February, 2021, if anyone wants to go back to that. So we won't spend a lot of time on this one, but it is a reversible form of hormonally triggered cholestasis. It does run in families and typically recurs in subsequent pregnancies. So with intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, you're going to see severe pruritus on the palms and soles uh, that can later become more generalized. But as you mentioned, no primary skin lesions and the itching correlates with elevated serum bile acids and sometimes elevated LFTs. The bile acids can also pass into fetal circulation and cause placental anoxia and cardiac depression, which can preclude premature birth, stillbirth, neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, vitamin K deficiency, and coagulopathy. All right. So yeah, I remember that cholestasis episode. Um, I kind of, though, I'm thinking about another one of one of my favorite acronyms, I think, in all of pregnancy, um, pruritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy or PUPs. And then there's also like polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, PEP. Yeah, so this this one affects one in 130 or one in 300 pregnancies or 0.6% in the US, which I was kind of surprised by that number because I feel like we see it more often than that. This often presents in the third trimester or postpartum with resolution in the postpartum period, more commonly in primogravative patients. Abdominal distension from the pregnancy causes damage to the connective tissue that in turn triggers an inflammatory response. This is also associated with multiple gestations due to higher levels of progesterone. And if I've learned anything from your podcast is that progesterone is the root of all evil. Very (laughs) true. (laughs) So we know that this does aggravate the inflammatory process at the tissue level. So with PUPS or PEP, you're going to see intensely pruritic urticarial rash with erythematous edematous papules and plaques that start in the abdominal striae and spares the umbilicus. And the lesions usually spare the palms and soles as well. This is a clinical diagnosis with no lab findings and no indication for biopsy. If biopsy is performed, it will often show a nonspecific perivascular lymphohistiocytic infiltrate with or without eosinophils. And there is no known risk to the fetus. Yeah. Try saying that three times fast. No, thank you. (laughs) Um, I feel like other things now we're really reaching here. So, you know, things like pustular psoriasis of pregnancy, for example. Yeah, good one. This this is also called impetigo herpetiformis. Uh, it's often associated with reduced calcium or vitamin D. The, these eruptions usually happen during the third trimester, in most cases resolve postpartum. These are characterized by numerous grouped, discrete, sterile pustules at the periphery of erythematous patches. The lesions typically originate on the flexures and progress to the trunk and spares the face, palms, and soles. Constitutional symptoms can be common, including fever, malaise, diarrhea, vomiting with dehydration. Lab findings usually include a leukocytosis with an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate or ESR, hypocalcemia and decreased vitamin D levels. The risk of stillbirth and fetal anomalies secondary to placental insufficiency are often sometimes seen as well. The maternal prognosis is very good with early diagnosis and aggressive treatment. However, the increased risk of perinatal mortality may persist despite maternal treatment. Diagnosis is based on histiopathology that shows typical features of pustular psoriasis. Direct and indirect skin immunofluorescence is negative. What else do you guys think? Anything else we got? Yeah, well, you saying pustules and immunofluorescence is reminding me of something from medical school a long time ago in those uh, pemphigoid forms of disorders, and there's a gestational pemphigoid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So unfortunately, this one is sometimes referred to as herpes gestationis. However, it is not related to the um, infection by herpes virus. The synonym was used originally to refer to the grouped or herpetiform nature of the blisters. So the rate for this, for pemphigoid gestationis or PG in the U.S. is 1 in 50,000 or 0.002%. It often presents in the second or third trimester and sometimes post with extremely pruritic urticarial lesions that typically begin on the abdomen and trunk and commonly involve the umbilicus. These urticarial plaques can then very quickly progress to widespread bullous lesions that may affect palms of hands and soles of feet. There's often a flare at the time of delivery with resolution during the postpartum period. Lesions can be similar to pups. However, pups lesions begin on the abdominal striae and spare the umbilicus, unlike PG. The suggested pathogenesis is complement-fixing IgG antibodies and complement C3 react with the amniotic epithelium of placental tissues and basement membrane of the skin, causing an autoimmune response resulting in tissue damage and blister formation. Definitive diagnosis is based on biopsies of the lesions. Direct immunofluorescence shows linear deposition of IgG and C3 along basement membrane. PG recognizes the same antigen as bullous pemphigoid, and they do share certain features. However, PG itself is confined only to pregnant women and women affected by gestational trophoblastic disease. Skin histiopathology shows a spongiotic epidermis and marked papillary dermal edema and an eosinophilic infiltrate. The expression of the PG antigen in the placenta begins in the mid-trimester, which correlates with the timing of the clinical symptoms. Unfortunately, there are risks to the fetus, which can include the fetus being born with skin lesions that are transient due to passive transfer of the IgG antibodies, as well as increased risk of SGA preterm birth and, I- and IOFD. All right. Do you, can you guys think of anything else as far as our differential diagnosis? I guess, you know, kind of thinking about just other things, we can think of like a, the atopic things so or like an atopic eruption of pregnancy. Yeah, great. This is going back to some more common things. This accounts for over 50% of the pruritic dermatoses of pregnancy. Most likely presents in the first and second trimester with resolution in the postpartum period again. This earlier onset may help distinguish from other dermatoses of pregnancy. The features of atopic eruption of pregnancy include patchy eczema and papular parigo lesions that are located on flexural surfaces, neck, chest, and trunk. Serum IgE will be elevated and there's no known risk to the fetus. And I guess since you said parigo, there's also a parigo of pregnancy. Yeah. So this occurs in one in 300 to one in 450 pregnancies. This one presents in the second and third trimester with group excoriated or crusted papules over the extensor extremities and occasionally the abdomen. There are no laboratory findings. There may be an elevated IgE on serologic tests. Previous reports of unfavorable fetal outcomes have not been confirmed. And I think we can do one more super rare one. Yeah, if we're going to go super rare, I guess there's this pruritic folliculitis of pregnancy. Yeah, so there's been 30 case reports so far on this one. So if it comes up on a test, I don't know if I'd pick it (laughs) or pick it because it probably is right. (laughs) The etiology remains unknown, presents as pruritic follicular erythematous papules and pustules that primarily affect the trunk in the second and third trimester. Biopsy is usually unhelpful. However, histopathology is that of folliculitis. The use of special stains, skin immunofluorescence, and serologies are usually all negative. So we've gone through all the possibilities that are pregnancy-specific and all tend to be pruritic and usually resolve around a, a couple weeks after delivery. They can all recur in subsequent pregnancies, unfortunately, except for the polymorphic eruption of pregnancy and parigo gestationis. 
Man, that was a lot of skin conditions. And for full disclosure to our listeners, um, Dr. Hanks was kind enough to put together an outline to help Faye and I through that differential diagnosis. I mean, it's wild to think about that there's so many skin conditions of pregnancy, and that's actually not even a full differential because we haven't even talked about things that can occur to pregnant people that also occur to non-pregnant folks. Yeah, exactly. So so the short list of the non-pregnancy related rashes that you could see are allergic contact dermatitis, a drug reaction, atopic dermatitis or eczema, erythema multiform, scabies, superficial fungal infections, folliculitis, urticaria, vasculitis, and secondary syphilis. That's a lot of other things it could be. So going back to the case, Dr. Hanks, so as Nick and I always do when we talk about our other cases, we want to do a good H&P. So what else can she tell us? Exactly. So in this case, the patient reports she began itching on the upper thighs that then spread to her abdomen, chest, back, and arms over several days. She then experienced severe pruritus of the palms of her hands and soles of her feet. She describes having to take off her shoes at work and soak them in ice baths and often sleeping with ice packs between her hands to soothe the itching. Benadryl doesn't seem to help, neither does over-the-counter steroid creams. On exam, there are numerous pink salmon-colored papules and plaques, as well as urticaria with scale within the umbilicus, flank, thighs, and back. And then on bilateral medial aspects of her feet, there are pink red vesicles with petechial border. All right, guys. So what, what should we do next? Dermatology. <laughs> Let's yeah, get them involved. Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll refer, we referred to uh, dermatology and got some biopsies of the lesions. On this patient's biopsy, there was separation of the epidermis from the dermis at the level of the dermoepidermal junction or DE junction. Direct immunofluorescence shows strong linear staining with C3 at the dermal epidermal junction. All right. So we now have this biopsy proven diagnosis. Um, And if I remember correctly, again, that direct immunofluorescence with that staining at that C3 linear staining at the dermal epidermal junction is consistent with pemphigoid. So super interesting. But before we jump into like pemphigoid directly, no, we went through that broad differential. We didn't talk though about treatment. And you mentioned in this case, this patient trying a number of things to treat her symptoms. Um, So why don't we go through how we treat, no, not just pemphigoid, but all of those dermatoses we talked about already. So the same treatment principles apply to all the specific dermatoses of pregnancies. And as we know, a few drugs have been proved to be safe during pregnancy, and the risk-benefit ratio has to be considered and discussed with all your patients. Now, just from this patient's story, you can tell she was pretty miserable, um, losing sleep and having to soak her feet in ice baths. And the and the 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 you know milder diseases that we usually treat with topical emollients, calamine lotion, cool compresses, or bath, topical steroids, weren't working. Um, but it's, it's definitely reasonable to start with these, um, such as, you know, with the topical corticosteroids, we think of hydrocortisone or triamcinolone. Uh, we do know that those are classified as FDA pregnancy category C drugs. However, they're still widely used in pregnancy with the, with the benefits thought to outweigh the risk and with minimal percutaneous absorption. All right. So Dr. Hanks, let's kind of go through some of those um, conditions that we talked about before and how we treat them. So let's start off with the intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. How would we usually treat that? Right. So as you guys know, we're going to do our ursodiol, um, 15 mg per kg per day that can be increased to BID or TID until delivery. Great. And again, my favorite acronym, PUPS. What do we do there? 
Sure. So this one is usually going to be um, patients are going to get some benefit from the topical antipyretic medications, topical steroids, oral antihistamines. And in severe cases, you can do a short course of oral steroids as well. All right. And then um, we also talked about that pustular psoriasis or impetigo herpetiformis. Right. So this one, you're going to go straight to the systemic steroids first line with a prednisone dose of 60 to 80 milligrams per day. You're also going to need to replete the calcium and vitamin D as well. All right. And with this patient, um, we found pemphigoid gestationist. So maybe a preview of what ultimately happens with her, but what would we generally do to treat this? Sure. So the cornerstone treatment for pemphigoid gestationist is also oral steroids, and the therapy should be directed towards suppressing new lesions. The majority of patients are going to respond rapidly to a relatively low dose of prednisone, which would be 20 to 40 milligrams per day. However, the dose may need to be up titrated according to clinical response and can be given as high as 180 milligrams a day. The prednisone should be tapered down slowly once new blister formation is suppressed. Approximately 75% of patients will experience resolution or at least improvement in the late third trimester. But because PG typically flares at delivery, steroid dose can be increased in anticipation of birth. Patients at risk for prolonged or chronic PG are often older with higher parity, more widespread lesions, and a history of PG in a prior pregnancy. All right. So I'm sure we're going to come back to that a little bit, but let's finish off the other things that we talked about before. So what about the atopic eruption of pregnancy? So this one, you're going to stick with your topical steroids, antihistamines, and sometimes you can do some UVB phototherapy as well. Hmm, interesting. And what about perigo? Moderately potent topical steroids and oral antihistamines are going to be the answer here. You can do a short course of oral steroids, but it's rarely required for this one. And I think the last thing that we talked about was pyretic folliculitis of pregnancy. So how do we treat this super rare, uh, rare condition? When in doubt, go with your steroids. So this one's going to be a low potency or mid-potent topical steroid. I'm glad we took that detour again um, to kind of review some of the treatments for those skin conditions. Um, but as we've mentioned, this patient had pemphigoid. Um, so what ultimately happened next with her? Sure. So our patient ended up developing gestational hypertension at 38 weeks and four days. She was admitted for induction of labor. After 24 hours, she was four centimeters and then started developing repetitive late and variable decelerations and was advised to proceed with a C-section given that she was remote from delivery. She gave birth to a healthy female infant weighing seven pounds, 11 ounces, who did not have any lesions. And as I mentioned before, women with PG can give birth to, to babies that have transient lesions about five to 10 percent of the time due to that passive transplacental transfer of the PG antibody. Our patient did receive stress dose steroids at delivery. However, she did flare postpartum, but her symptoms improved with an increased dose of methylprednisolone, and she has complete resolution of symptoms at three months postpartum. So as mentioned earlier, there's a high likelihood of recurrence with future pregnancies in PG, and lesions are often more severe, appear earlier in gestation, and persist for longer postpartum. Well, it's great that there was a happy ending for this pregnancy. Um, have you kept in touch with this patient and found out what happened afterwards? Yeah. So the, the story continues to uh, become more and more strange, I guess. Uh, so this patient attempted to conceive again two years later and experienced a blighted omen followed by a missed AB that was treated with a DNC. And that was found to have a partial mole. After trending beta HCG, she tried to conceive again and had a chemical pregnancy. She then successfully conceived on her fourth attempt, and at 13 weeks gestation, she began to itch and was started on prednisone. 
Unfortunately, this stopped giving relief to her by about 26 weeks of gestation, and she began to experience the side effects of long-term steroid use, such as extreme fatigue, weight gain, and hypokalemia. Yeah, I mean, this sounds no good, and this poor patient's kind of going through an early pregnancy bingo here on top of just pemphigoid. But I guess kind of talking about this particular skin condition, you know, steroids, I guess, were one thing, but if they're not working, what can be done um, in the setting of like recurrent or bad PG? Sure. So once again, you want to get your dermatology colleagues involved as well as MFM. Um, so they were consulted and there was discussion about alternative treatment. And these include uh, intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG, plasmapheresis, rituximab, cyclosporin A, azathioprine. And then in the postpartum period, you can talk about doing dapsone or methotrexate. So in, in our particular patient, there was shared decision-making going through all of these options. Um, and she elected to proceed with IVIG infusions, which were given for three consecutive days every month until the end of pregnancy. Her symptoms did improve, but she never completely resolved during pregnancy. And she continued the prednisone along with the IVIG. She had a scheduled repeat C-section at 37 weeks and three days with stress dose steroids given at delivery. She gave birth to a healthy male infant weighing eight pounds and one ounces, also with no lesions. All right, you guys, you ready? we got a big plot twist coming up. All right, oh, I'm man. ready for it. <laughs> the patient was, dun, 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 me. <laughs> and my MFM was Dr. Nick Burns. Hey. Surprise. <laughs> so just to put in perspective, just how lucky I was to have PG and be one in 50,000, the odds of winning an Oscar are one in 11,500. And this is, this is my favorite one. The odds of being injured by a toilet are one in 10,000. <laughs> the odds of dying by bees, death by bees is one in 59,507. And the odds of winning a gold medal are one in 662,000. Wow. Definitely um, you were a, a quote unquote lucky, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's okay with you guys, I just wanted to give a couple quick shout outs um, just because this was obviously a really hard time for me. And um, I just wanted to thank Dr. Courtney Olson Chen with MFM and Dr. Mary Mercurio in dermatology at the University of Rochester, who initially um, diagnosed me and treated me in my first pregnancy. Dr. Anna Kojin, the dermatologist at the University of Washington, who helped really get through my second pregnancy, Dr. Ushma Patel at the University of Wisconsin, who kind of, who helped me prepare the outline for this show. And last but not least, Dr. Nick Burns, whose compassion and empathy truly got me through the toughest times. And I'm pretty sure my mom wants to adopt him into our family after <laughs> our experience at Washington. Oh, that's so nice, Laura. Thank you. Um, this was really excellent. I'm so glad that we made it full circle to, to have you on the podcast to share your developed expertise and lived experience of this. Um, and I guess, do you have some other random pemphigoid facts too? So there is an association between PG and Graves' disease. Therefore, if you ever come across this with a patient with PG, think about checking their thyroid tests as well. Uh, and then also given the increased risk for small for gestational age infants and preterm delivery it is recommended that you monitor the ultrasounds for growth after you do the, after you get the diagnosis as well. All right. Well, thank you again so much, Dr. Hanks, for coming out of the podcast and um, talking to us about the dermatoses and pregnancy. We won't do a entire um, review here just because there's a lot of things to go over, but we are going to be including uh, this great chart that she sent us from Habith's uh, Clinical Dermatology that goes through all, everything that we talked about today. So thank you again, Dr. Hanks. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. It's been a pleasure and an honor. 
Um, well, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriag's Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Kriag's Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Kriag's Over Coffee, or if you love the show, want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Coffee. If you send us some love, we'll send you some swag. If you want some great pictures of all of these dermatoses, as well as the charts and other show notes, you can go ahead and go onto our website. You'll also find the Rosh Review Question of the Week there. That's www.kriagsrivercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this episode or any of our previous episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, kriagsrivercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>